we raise a bunch of kids to be these perfect citizens. And yet when you read Plato's description of creating the Guardian class, you go, no freaking way. They're divorced from humanity as we understand and value it. Mm -hmm. They're not really connected to each other, family or friends, in the kind of way that makes a society you'd want to be a part of. Mm. You know, honestly, I'd rather be a Spartan. Yeah. At least you live in barracks, party hard, train hard. Mm. Still preferable to being Plato's guardian class. I am here this lovely morning with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well on this lovely morning. <laughs> Just thought I'd express that because it's spring and I'm starting to retrieve my happiness from the uh, wintry sadness that always affects me. <laughs> oh, look, I'll very much, be, you know, I'll become like a cockroach soon where it'll be like, there's light, hide in the darkness. <laughs> but for the moment, the, mm. light is, the light is warm and pleasant until the UV is too high. Do and then I hide. Yeah, absolutely. So it'd be nice, you know, I'm all about the open skies, but um, it'd be nice to have that compromise where if it weren't so bright, that would be... <laughs> I'd like to have a well-trained cloud. Yeah. <laughs> it just keeps me in relative shade. We have the technology soon, I'm sure. Listen, it's an interesting time for myself. Uh, I've just had my sister give birth to a, a wonderful, lovely baby niece. Daisy May is her name, which is awesome. One of my other nieces is called Evie Grace, and so Evie Grace and Daisy May. Exactly, we've got the the, th the three syllable. It sounds like we got the McCoys now. We just need the Hatfields. That's it. Yeah. Well, this so I've campaigned with Jade now to name my kid Billy Bob for the. Oh, that means we can get Billy Bob a little vial of blood to have around their neck in a bottle. Oh, cool. Yeah, I just you little know, Billy Bob. This is Uncle Dave's blood. That's it. wear it with pride. And I hope that um, we can continue a family tradition where every uh, firstborn male is Billy Bob in the family. So we Billy Bob the third, and 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 go down that line. So, but I digress. Um, we digressed a bit. I was about to make a comment. The only way to tell all the Billy Bobs apart is by the quality of their teeth. <laughs> Over time, they just gradually <laughs> get better, get worse. No one's quite sure. Mm. Um, we well, went a long way from the original topic, didn't we? Yeah, but, you know, it's still relevant. It, 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 because, you know, I guess a name is actually quite important for how that kid is going to live its life. Like you as a parent decide uh, what, that, what that person is going to be called their entire life, and that can have a pretty big impact. I um, was nearly Brian. Really? Brian Olney. Mum was thinking Brian and Dad said no. Yeah, Thanks, right. Dad. Brian, Brian is an older name. David is like a more contemporary, I reckon. I don't know. David's not very common anymore. Don't know if Brian is either. I, I have friends, Dave and David. Yeah, there's point. There's in, in my era, so you know, it's yeah. kind of lasted. But I, I think I, I don't saw, know any little kids named David. Yeah, that's my point. I think I saw mm. the the UK list of the top forty boys and girls names last year. I'm like, most of these names aren't names. Yeah. <laughs> Like they're unrecognisable yeah. from an Anglo-Saxon <laughs> cultural heritage. I'm like, wow, there's some awesome names on there, but yeah. they're all new. And I'm like, I like this. Some are really cool. I mean, people get pretty creative with it. I, I, you, no, it, I don't like creative it's, names. It's also, but like it's also kind of abusive, right? <laughs> if I have to kind of spell a version of a name that should be spelt you know, in a normal way. Mm. Well, it gets confusing. Okay, take the wonderful guitarist Robin Ford. Who decides to call their kid Robin and spell it R-O-B-B-E-N? R-O-B-B-E-N. So it's Rob and oh. Ben combined. Now, it's kind of a very cool idea. Interesting. But I wondered why when I was sort of typing it into the computer, 
Mm. Why is this not working? Oh. Yeah. And, or, you know, you do it with a Y instead of an E, and that's always kind of a bit popular, replacing. Like yeah, e, look, there's, e there's so many variants that just make my life difficult. What Have you have you uh, ever come across the um, JKMN? No, thankfully. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, pronounced no L because it's missing the L from JKLMN. So null, yeah, it's hilarious. That's very bad. (laughs) Well, the point is that we have been discussing what, you know, makes good societies, what we need to think about in, in just having those conversations about how we can make our society better. And I think an important part of that is how we are as parents because it inevitably change comes almost generationally and that raising kids to believe a different thing can really help with, you know, for instance, the eradication of racism and things like that, you know, and those things end up being taught and parents have a pretty massive role in society in, in terms of how how our society moves forward, which is, is kind well, of interesting because you think about the micro scale, but it has a macro impact. They should have a massive role. Mm. And the question is, I suppose, whether they really do mm. or because kids spend so much time with each other and at school, is it a fact that you get so many competing factors influencing what kids become? Mm. Well, that, that's always the thing, isn't it? It's like you can, you are basically entirely in control of how your child, you know, thinks and what they do and, the patterns and things that they pick up and up up until they go to kindy. Where mm, they you're the first dose of mirroring. Well, again, yeah. let, audience, let, let's you know, make the point here. We don't have kids, either of us. Yeah. So we're observing from our experience of watching other people what it was like to be kids. Mm. In my case, what it's like to have taught lots of people who are in the transition from being teenagers to being adults. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's an observation rather than a, a statement of experience. Mm. But it seems to me one of the hardest things for parents is initially they have so much influence mm. and then in our society step after step the other influences come online so the first and most immediate one probably is daycare yeah suddenly it's a very small world then it's a very regimented bigger world mm. and more and more just more and more influences at what point do they start being affected by what's on the tv at what point do they start being affected yeah. How many little kids have you heard the story where they know how to pick up mum and dad's mobile, mm. get in and open up YouTube and just randomly pick, you know, they can't type, mm. but some of them know how to go and hit the voice search, say what they want to look for, Yeah, but you know, two or three. It's yep. like, what the heck? Yep. I have a niece that uh, is, I don't want to say, addi- she's not addicted to YouTube. She has like regimented times that she is allowed access to YouTube. But it, She knows what she likes and she likes YouTube. I... I could never have done that at that age, you know. I mean, computers well, no, were around. You, you but didn't have all the things in front of you to make it more likely it would happen. Yeah, I guess the dominoes the, didn't line up. That's right. Well, it's an interest. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a vastly different world to bring kids up in now, and 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 how how much of an influence is kid YouTube by comparison to what play school was, you know? Because that's also mirroring. Mm. We had TV and mm. and but the whole point is. Lots of kids watch the same episode of Play School every day. Mm. So when they got to daycare or kindy or primary school, they had a continuity that gave them another way to connect with each other. Mm-hmm. And with less options, there was probably more social oversight mm-hmm. about what the messages were in limited channels. Mm-hmm. So as much as limited, limited channels could be perceived as being limiting, there was probably far more oversight about 
the educational benefits of limited channels. Mm. Whereas now, well, the whole point of YouTube at the end of the day is to make money. Isn't it? Yeah, exactly. For the content creators. Yep. So, I mean, kids are watching ads too. Yeah. Like, and how how much is that dictated? Not It's not dictated by the by the parents. You know, I mean, no. it's not even done from a community perspective like you would see on ABC or something. It's it's dictated by Google, which is a massive company yep. who sell Who want to make profit. Yeah. So, you know, in my lifetime, we've gone from mega junk food adverts mm. after school to what's the deal now? None. Yeah, the, the, that's been completely ruled out. Mm, um, but then what kid is watching TV after school? Yeah, it's not TV. Yeah, certainly not. So, okay, we fixed an issue almost a couple of decades late. Mm. But where do we start on the next one that's emerging? And, you know, the fact is that if the little human knows how to do the voice search to ask for what it wants, mm-hmm. isn't the AI and the algorithm going to work out what adds to best tailor to the little voice it just heard? I'm sure it. I'm sure it does. Yeah, I don't, whether I, it'll be admitted or not, I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, because you you can have a YouTube Kids account, right? Mm. And so it filters through, takes out the worst of the horrors. Exactly, but does it then also tailor the advertising? Yeah, and make sure that things are shorter and more colourful to up the chance of addiction. Oh, hundred percent, it does. The whole thing's like not, the actual website is colourful. Like, yeah. Well, as you and I have talked about before, you know. On a cold morning, you're like, mm, should I get out of bed or should I just pull my laptop in here and watch YouTube? Mm. And you didn't start with it as a little one. Yeah. You discovered it as a you know as a, a teenager. Yep. You already had different patterns. You already had the pattern of your mum reading to you every night. Mm. You're going learning to make and do things with your dad. Mm. You already had these patterns to compete with technology. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. as parents have less and less time, the technology just becomes you know, more of an impact mm. with as yet you know, unclear levels of regulation. I don't want to be too cynical about you know technology being a third parent, I guess. but No, but it, it's there mm. and the fact is it can tailor itself or be tailored to the audience so well, which is a new thing. Mm. Like a parent can't pull up you know, the coolest song, game, or activity from their own head necessarily. Ah, there's way too many things to remember. Yeah, the tablet can. Yeah, that's right. So to me, this is what's new. And it could be a great tool if supervised properly. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. the trick is going to be how to to do that supervision, how to curb its excesses. I mean, in, in, in some ways, parents are less in control of, as in control, let's say, of pop culture influences now as they ever have been, you know. Um, well, now it's about controlling the device and knowing what the device is used for. It's it's sort of twofold. Mm. Whereas historically it would have been, you know, the TV's not on these times of day. Well, that gets rid of popular culture. Yeah. And in a sense now the same is true with the tablet or the computer. Mm-hmm. If it's not computer or tablet time, you don't get access. But once you're on that thing, the number of channels. So historically a parent would have known that between, say, 4 p.m. and 6 p.m., most channels are kids' TV that's mm-hmm. all been said to be okay by the sensors. And if you're going to let the kid have two hours of TV, that's a relatively safe time slot. Mm-hmm. So what's really changed is you still might give them their two hours, but with on-demand, what can they access in two hours? So in a sense, the need for parents to even have more oversight, so even more pressure, it seems to me, is on parents now Absolutely. to take responsibility not just for the time slot, but to keep you know one eye on 
what the kids are actually finding. Mm, yeah, you should almost have there should be a, a, a system where notifications are set up on everything, every single thing that they click. Yep, that it's kept as a log. And mm. I would say one of the first uses of AIs that we'll really see is you know, AIs monitoring what small humans you know, interact with mm. and giving a, you know, a one-minute data dump to mum and dad, but in like a little news report. Mm. Oh, man. Because who's going to want to go through the log? That would be boring. The parent bot. <laughs> mm, but if the little bot pops up on the screen mm. and goes, hi, little Johnny did this, this, and this. Mm. Little Johnny spent extra time looking at spaghetti. Yeah. Well, we're cooking spaghetti on Saturday. Whatever. But it seems to me that that will be one of the first uses of AI. Mm. Because we want, well, we don't just want, we probably need that level of additional oversight to give parents a more informed perspective. Mm. What, what, I guess, what, like, you know, to bring this back, let's say, to the, the democratic, we haven't even seen what the result of all of this influence and technology being um, decentralized would, has, can, can do for, uh, like perspectives of, of kids, I guess, you know? So, you know, we already know that we've seen some pretty bad consequences from technology. Mm. So I think the, the best book on this is called Reclaiming Conversation by mm-hmm. Sherry Turkle. And she got called in by a major law firm in Boston where the partners were horrified that lawyers under 30 would not actually get up and walk two cubicles to talk to a colleague. They'd text. Yeah. Because they're actually afraid of talking to people. Yeah. And these were the overachievers. Yeah. So as much as the computer can provide more information on the device. Where's your random people time of dealing with strangers and becoming comfortable interacting? How many people of your age or slightly younger do you know who are uncomfortable on the phone? <laughs> Almost all of them. I, 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 it would be easier for me to name people who are comfortable. Yeah, because they're the exceptions. Yeah. So yep. here's a, mass, you know, a massive shift in under 20 years. From a phone being a way to reach out and gather information, which is a limited option, mm. to, okay, I'd rather use the internet and an email because I really don't want to have to talk to a stranger and have pauses or silences. Mm-hmm. And yet it's in practicing talking to strangers that you get good at it and then can talk to new people and get to know them. Yeah. And that's a incredible skill really, isn't it? It's mm. It actually takes us – it's funny because it takes the stress out of life. Like mm. you would be comfortable in almost any situation. Mm. Which is me. I can talk to any stranger anywhere because I need them. Yeah. yeah. Hey, they've ripped up the footpath. Can you help me? Yeah. I have to be able to do that to anybody. Yep. So – and this is one of the ones where I get baffled. Okay. We've got the thing where the use of technology has changed. So the idea of picking up the phone has become uncomfortable for a lot of young adults. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, most of these young adults – have spent more time with other kids in daycare or kindy or school than the generations before them. Mm-hmm. So they're very socially connected to the people they see every day. Yes. So they've got a large immediate group, but somehow the skills to bridge that have been affected adversely. Yeah, that's interesting. Like If we put it into... Like you would have more friends... Mm that you know of your own age than I ever would have had at your age. Oh, I'm, I don't doubt that. Like, it, Sometimes it annoys me how many... like People you know and can go hang out with. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's actually... It, it, sometimes I get kind of intimidated or... Maybe not intimidated maybe, is maybe not the right word, but maybe stressed out. I, I guess it's, it's in a simple way to describe it. But I'm stressed at 
how many people that I actually have to keep tabs on just in case if I mm. see them in, randomly in public, I need to be able to ask them the mm. question of, oh, hey, how's the new whatever in mm. your life? Now, this is an interesting problem. If yeah. we go to that wonderful number, the Dunbar number, yes, that you can only really know about 150 people, mm-hmm. enough to go, who are they? Who are they connected to? What do they roughly do? Mm-hmm. Now, that was meant to be in a village where life was boring and consistent. Yes. How do you do it in the modern world? Where until COVID, anyone could have jumped on a plane, spent a year overseas multiple times since you saw them last. Yep. So you're meant to somehow remember these 150 plus people. And the problem is it's not 150, it's hundreds. Mm. And you feel a social pressure or you'll be in trouble if you get it wrong. Why can't everyone just accept, I'll smile at you and then let's start from scratch? Yeah. Yep. Wouldn't that be a kinder way to interact? So we've got the ironic thing of more socialization at an immediate level, but also more social pressure Mm. to remember and maintain that. So where's the win? More people should have made life more better. Yeah. Not more stressful. And yes, listeners, I just said more better. (laughs) It's a constant running gag. (laughs) Lots of things in life are more better. Yes. And then other things are more worse. (laughs) I'm sure you've seen that in some essays. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, normally I want to write it in the comments. (laughs) <laughs> this essay was more worse than your last one. But then I don't write that because mm. that would be me. And grammatically incorrect. <laughs> it, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's funny. I and mean, if we kind of think about it, you know, let's say in the Dunbar number and we think about like little villages of 150 people or, or, or whatever it is, yeah, perhaps you're right in that our, our village closer group is more interconnected. Mm. But as an analogy, I guess our, our tribes are less exposed to other tribes as we grow up. Like there is less interactions between tribes. Well, it's not real interaction. That's it's right. It's not tangible and physical. It's more and more interaction. Like you know about them and you can watch the video. Yes. But have you had the experience? So, okay, Liam, let's look at sort of traditional cultures mm-hmm. that would have the big gatherings at least once a year or every couple of years so that everyone knew they were part of something bigger. And everyone had this thing every year or few years in their life of meeting all the people. You didn't need to know them, but you needed to know how to get along with them. Mm. So there was a real effort in learning to get along with people you didn't see regularly. You know, in person and dealing with discomfort. Mm. And that was really helpful. Because for the people who go, man, my little village is small. Man, the next village is as small. I want to get out of here. Well, it was that next big opportunity to connect with other people that maybe you found your way to still be within the world where you'd be safe, but to be far away from what bored you. And enjoy it too. Enjoy yeah. celebrating precisely with people that you're not even comfortable with, I guess. Yep. Yeah. So a, a really kind of strangers but still connected. Mm. Whereas now it strikes me that to a very large extent we're connected to strangers. We have all these connections, but really, how could we possibly know this many people? Well. See, that's interesting because it has all kinds of implications for even modern celebrations like, you know, clubbing and things where... Mm. Yeah, when the music's that loud, how can you get to know anyone? E- well, yeah, true. And when everyone's half cut, what's the point other than to get laid? Are you even going to be... Well, I mean, that's exactly what the point is, but are, mm. you, are you even going to be comfortable? Like, our kids kids growing up today even going to be comfortable in the situation of a club where they're surrounded by strangers. Yeah, like really if COVID continues mm. for a reasonable amount of time, mm. what's this going to do to the small humans and socialisation? And, okay, further implication being 
how does that affect their worldview if they can't connect with people beyond their very small immediate world. circle? How can you care or sympathize about yeah. issues that don't affect your tribe, yeah. let's say? And then we get into Benedict Anderson and the idea of imagined communities. Mm. The, the fact that if we can read the same book or listen to the same radio broadcast in the same language about the same stories and connect, we can feel connected to the other people. Mm-hmm. But that's a world of limited options. Yes. With the everything option of the digital device. Like, what if you're the weird little kid who decides you like 1930s blues mm-hmm. and just listens to scratchy old recordings? Like, what? You could do that. I'm not sure what little kid would do that. Yeah. Except probably the next great blues guitarist. <laughs> so you're like, out there today as a four year old that, you know, 20 years from now will be the next you know, <laughs> Joe Bonamassa. Yep. But you know, going to go super old school and you know, going to go wow, I'm out. I've got like a 1946 Fender amp. Yep. Didn't even know there was a 1946 Fender amp. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know till yesterday until I was watching a thing. Well, listening to a thing about Joe Bonamassa's guitar and amp collection. Wow, 1946, crazy. And I'm like, right, okay. It's right and, at the start of that. Yeah, really, and the, yeah, the tech who was working on it for him was like, I think this may have been wired by Leo Fender himself. Whoa. And again, to us as weird little dudes, that kind of means something. Yes. Now, most of your audience just feel free to go weird little dudes and ignore it. <laughs> but this is sort of the point. Um, Those options are out there. Yeah, for, mm. If you've got the freedom to be so independent, mm. but the pressure to have to remember a few hundred people, mm. that seems to me a basis for anxiety. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, that. I feel like you've just explained what so the psychologists have been trying to explain for for years now, mm. that that feels like actually a, a really genuine and and foundation and probable, for anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that you can be so independent, but you are you feel so obliged to be meaningfully connected to so many people mm. that how do you be you when you have to be connected to everyone, and how can you be connected to everyone when you should be putting effort into becoming you? Right, and if that anxiety gets bad enough, you secl- you exclude yourself, yep. and that loneliness is depressive yep and in a world where we know a bit too much about the problems mm. the risk of anxiety and, and again we'll, we'll sort of look at anxiety and depression being on a spectrum mm-hmm. that you know if you're starting to get anxious well then the likelihood is when you also look at the fact the world's a bit scary and that you can get the information on the scariness but again you can get the information but not necessarily the other side of the argument mm. what we're going to do about it so you've got a combination here that leads to anxiety in a world where the likelihood of being scared about the state of the world mm. is even higher. Well, Amelia's point, you know, when we put up the episode we did with her about the environment, yeah. where she'd been feeling really down yep, and not really interacting via social media for a little while because yeah. she just didn't know what to say about the terrible decisions being made in the world. Mm. Hang on, she's one of the best explainers of why we should care and what we should care about. Mm. Yeah. So when that kind of pressure kicks in, that's not good. Okay. So as a parent, you're trying to bring a, a child up into a into a world where all of these things are, are challenges. Do you then remove screens entirely, or is it actually problematic because you you could do that? You could say that your child has no access to technology into a certain age or whatever, and that might be something that a psychologist might even recommend. But uh, d- d- is it 
beyond your control because these are macro issues and you would send a child out into the world where everyone around them is is involved with, with technology and, and, and they're almost left out and, and the people around them don't know how to interact with them. Again, going to restate the whole not a parent thing mm. to make my observation of watching so many friends and having taught so many young adults sure, and meeting so many of my former students who are now parents. Mm. But to me... The most successful model I've seen consistently is parents who recognise they can't step their kid out of the world that is, mm-hmm. but actively engage in helping to make sense of the world along with their kid because it's as new to their child as it is mm. to them. So the parent who admits the world has changed doesn't try and dominate how the child interacts with the world, but goes on the ride of the interaction. Sees how the child's interact, sees what's available, decides something's not you really you're too little for this yet, or wow, I don't even know how to begin explaining that. Let's go do something else. Mm. But it's there. And in a simpler world, in villages of 150, in extended families, kids had more adults around them who cared and had time mm. and were in a world where it was safer for them to explore because the threats were less and could be more clearly understood by everyone in the community. So when you were free, you could be more free. And when you're surrounded by adults, there were more people who had time. So now we've got a world that changes faster and there's less people around who can look after you Mm. because of the nature of our atomized society. Mm -hmm. So it seems now that the pressure on parents to be there, to be able to mediate the world, that they are also having to get their heads around. And any parent who says the world makes sense, in my opinion, is a liar. Because the world makes sense to nobody. If you think the world makes sense, mm. I can tell you how the world works, but I'm not going to ever lie and say the world makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How it works proves it doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. It seems like it's cyclical. How can kids who are facing the, the, the pressures of an atomized society then become... Really parents. socially connected and then become parents. Yeah. How, how, does, how, does the ki- how do the kids of today engage a village to raise their future children. Yeah. yeah. I've made the point so, for so many years when I was teaching universities that very often the biggest problems a lot of my students seemed to have mm. was the fact that mum and dad came from such a different experience and hadn't realised their children's experience was radically different. Like historically it seems to me parents and children, children decide to be different to their parents because in the main too much stayed the same. Mm-hmm. So you... you got your identity by deliberately finding points of difference. Whereas now, I don't think kids have to find any points of difference. The world just throws them up in front of everyone instantly. If anything, I I have emerged from adolescence, but if anything, I feel now that I would I, I wish to be similar to my parents in many ways. Like it's there, I aspire to... To be open and connected to the world and to see it with fresh eyes every day which is what your mum and dad seem to do. Sure. I, I aspire even, but even to their their ways of life, the way that they, the world engages with them and the way they engage with the world in some ways. Mm. Yeah. And see, this is the thing, when the world is changing so fast, mm. yes, we need to define our own identity, mm. but does that need to be in rebellion against mum and dad? I'm wondering if, okay, it's, it's a default part of teenage, just needing to find your own identity. Mm-hmm. But I would, my feeling is it's going to get shorter and shorter. As kids realise, actually, there's so few people in your corner having an artificial point of difference, 
if the people in your corner are actually aware that the world is, you know, topsy turvy, mm. and are willing to go on the ride with you to give you the best chance of making sense of it. They don't have all the answers, but they're there to support you. Mm. Like, like kids who battle for identity just for the sake of, you know, so what? Well, because I want an identity. Yeah, it's not enough anymore. The other thing too, and it seems a trend I've seen in students over the last not quite 20 years but 18 years of teaching is you know this whole thing of helicopter parenting there are always a few parents who were overprotective and you know it had an adverse impact mm. but as the world has got more and more confronting and more and more difficult to deal with no wonder more and more parents have tried to helicopter mm. but you can't make yourself, let alone a little human, safe from everything. So the mission is even more than it you know, has been for a long time to teach a kid how to be first resilient and then eventually anti-fragile. But we've got a generation of parents who the world didn't change as fast for them as it's changing for their children. So they haven't got the kind of practice at resilience and anti-fragility that their children have to get. So it's almost a situation now where you know, resilience and anti-fragility have to be social policies mm-hmm. because we've got to make sure that adults have them locked in at such a level that they're a bit calmer mm. about being in the world so that there's less of a chance they'll helicopter parent kids who have to be resilient at a minimum and ideally anti-fragile. Yeah, it, it almost does have to be at a policy level because I, I, I will take your point that the pressure and the responsibility isn't just on parents alone, but no. the society in which the child is being brought up in because so many people have uh, Im- immediate and strong influence on their lives considering how early they are uh, adopted into, I don't know, more or less the system is an easiest, yeah. easiest way to describe it. And the thing too that, you know, it seems to be so many people I know have been teachers, mm. a few still are, more were and aren't anymore because of the pressures of doing it, mm. that there is so much... You know, part of our society is to say, why should I take responsibility if there's a professional? There's an abrogation of responsibility in yeah. so many aspects of modern life. So the abrogation of responsibility to schools to go, well, kid needs to learn to be resilient and anti-fragile, you do it. No. Mm. It's another place where part of the job can be done. But mum and dad have to do a part of it. The extended family have to do a part of it. The school has to do a part of it. Society as a whole needs policies that lean towards everyone being more resilient and anti-fragile. And that's interesting in a multicultural society such as Australia because how do you do that in a way that doesn't homogenise the cultural output of children? Because mm, what we want the continuity to be is how to cope and how to adapt, right. not what you end up being. Sure, But at the same token... We do want a degree of continuity because we want everyone to know how to be part of a modern liberal democracy Mm -hmm. and part of a society where the default setting is to show people respect Mm -hmm. and be accepting of difference. But there's still always limits on respect and difference. Right. It's it's interesting because you have to look at it... you have to separate society from culture and then yep. in, in an institutionalized society in some ways, if yep. that makes sense. And so. say, that, okay, society needs to define mm. some boundaries and to say, look, as long as everyone as a citizen is within these boundaries, you can be you can be other things too. 
but you can't diminish anyone's, you know, rights as if they're being a good citizen mm. and they're, re- they're meeting the rules. And yet, how do you teach this to young adults before they have kids? How do you teach it to old adults who grow up in a different world? Well, none of it, because precisely because none of none of these questions are raised. It, it, you don't at any point you you, you no. barely learn them even if you choose to do something like child studies at school. Yeah, and outside of that, it's not as if you have to do any kind of application process to have a child. So yep. there's there's no point at which any of this information is more or less mandated. And you know, to go full circle, if we go back to you know, that really, you know, last week we recorded the episode, you know, based around Bill's questions mm. about you know how do you construct a a good society dealing with populism, and that we can only know limited things, and we can't really know what it's like to be any other person mm. entirely. We we kind of back to this, you know, popped in my head when we were talking about this on the phone the other days, you know, sort of Plato's Guardian class. Mm-hmm. We raise a bunch of kids to be these perfect citizens. And yet when you read Plato's description of creating the Guardian class, you go, no freaking way. They're divorced from humanity as we understand and value it. Mm-hmm. They're not really connected to each other, family or friends, in the kind of way that makes a society you'd want to be a part of. Mm. You know, honestly, I'd rather be a Spartan. Yeah. At least you live in barracks, party hard, train hard. Mm. Still preferable to being Plato's Guardian class. So... Whatever we do has to acknowledge that at core people want to be surrounded by family and friends and be connected mm-hmm. and not feel overwhelmed and not feel too anxious and be they want to feel positive about tomorrow. Mm. Especially. That's a lot of things to have to balance. Mm. No wonder politicians don't know where to start. Uh, and you would absolutely forgive parents and teachers for yeah. for feeling that way also because yep. they're not in control of those policy settings. They're not in, in control yep. of anything beyond the micro scale. Yeah, and this is why I think all the years I've taught people, I keep coming back to the thing of all I ever try and be is an exemplar of what functioning in an okay way looks like. Mm. So through, you know, again, got to read the mirror in your own book and got to invite the author of the mirror in your own book on because mm. clearly... The best thing you can do is just do things in a way that if it works, other people can see what you did and go, if that's useful, they can internalise some of it. Because so much of what we are is is mirror neurons first and foremost. Mm-hmm. We mirror what we're surrounded by. We mirror what seems to work. We mirror what we like. Cool. Mm. And then, so if mum and dad look anxious and don't know what to do, mm. what are little ones going to mirror? If teachers are anxious and aren't quite sure what they're meant to do, what a little one's going to mirror. Mm. And, and what a perfect way to instill meaning in the abstract world. Like what a perfect way to give people a sense of purpose then by making them exemplars. What, what a, like Offering that as a kind of like a viable option to define yourself and your life by, I think is actually really, it should benefit society really. And it should benefit a lot of people individually. Like a lot of the people that are growing up now and, and kind of struggling to find meaning where what they've been told is they have to do something that they love for work and that they have to be passionate about, you know, abstract things, I guess. Mm. Yeah. I think what I'm thinking here is that if we could get people to understand and implement, mm. you don't need to know what to do. No but you need to know how to treat other people, mm. how you expect to be treated, and how to work out what to do next. Mm-hmm. If you've got those three hows sorted, how are you going to treat other people, how you will allow yourself to be treated, and how you're going to work out what to do next, mm-hmm. 
not much can't be worked out. And that seems to me that that is this essence of engaged parenting and teaching. Mm. If what they're really showing is, this is how you treat other people, this is how you, you know, be treated in the world, and this is how we work out how to deal with being in the world, what more can you really, you know, give children? That's right. And I, coming back to last week's question about the combinatorial ontology, mm. what a legacy you can leave if if all that you can be sure about is shared experience in in terms of setting an example that other people will will mirror is is, is kind of mm. virtuous if you can be sure that that actually has a because the point is you're mirroring impact. the behavior not mm. what the person said. Mm. So being sure of so yeah so and, and in that way you, you, I totally understand why and, and this is kind of a whole other topic but I, I can totally I can totally see why people people's lives change so dramatically when they have children and that it, that gives them a sense of purpose because all of a sudden that is mm. perfectly clear that being an example being a role model being a a parent um, changes your perspective on mm. on everything completely but I, I my fear is that it's such an enormous thing when it happens mm. they don't realize well not not enough parents realize okay worry a little bit mm. but just behave in a way you would respect and your little one will be fine mm-hmm. yeah it's like don't a, make a perfect world mm. don't do one thing and say another thing to them don't be a hypocrite if there's a thing that kids can sniff and teenagers can definitely smell and, you know, 18, 19-year-old uni students can definitely call bullshit on. It's <laughs> hypocrisy. Mm. And yet any teacher that comes across as a hypocrite gets ignored en masse. Yeah. my experience from being a student and being a teacher. Like, I've worked with some very smart people, but the reason students ignore them is because they're hypocrites. Mm. Mm. And the kids work it out even before they know what they've worked out. Yeah, yeah it's uh, subconscious. They already know. Yeah, because it's such a deep thing to analyse in other people. Yeah. If we see hypocrisy, we immediately switch off to it. Or I think the other side is it teaches that horrible new game of it doesn't matter what you do as long as you win, which yeah. is actually what hypocrisy teaches. Mm. And there are a proportion of people who from hypocrisy, rather than recoiling from it, learn to use it as a weapon. Absolutely. I'm fluent in bullshit, not because I specifically sought it out, but because I mirrored So much the, of it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, So much of it to be exposed <laughs> to. That you go, well, I can play that game. I don't really like the game. Actually, the game makes me feel pretty yucky. Yeah. But I know how it works because it's so ubiquitous. Yep. And it gets me where I need to be. So, yeah, you've got another tension that, you know, children and young adults have to balance Mm. is recognising that hypocrisy leaves a bad taste in your mouth, Mm -hmm. but also realising it's the fastest path to a short-term victory. Mm. Say what you need to say to get the outcome you need immaterial of, you know, the consequences of what you feel about it. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you can keep rolling forward and keep getting candy, you probably don't notice the train wreck for quite a while. So it's interesting that in, in, in some ways, this is what... I'm going to bring this back to Jordan Peterson because why not? The, 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 no, rule, why not? the rule about... I can't even remember what it is. Taking care of yourself as if... Um, yeah, look after yourself as if you're someone you're responsible for caring for. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and in some ways, that is a, a kind of cool societal rule to follow because mm. you almost make people parents before they become parents or mm. if, if they become parents at all like and everyone almost just adopts that responsibility which does solve the macro level problems mm. certainly heads us in a better direction mm. of going well you know 
would you make a kid do this? Would you make someone you care about, who mm. you're responsible for, do something hypocritical that is going to disconnect them from the truth of who they are and want to be? Sure, yeah. So and it's maybe you would and you're a sociopath <laughs> and then we probably need children or small animals, but that's a whole other issue. So in, in reality, it's maybe not all people become parents, but at least everyone should be a role model because it... Because because you are actually responsible for children that you don't even parent. Yep, because just the fact that mirror neurons are such a deep part of our brain mm. and we we watch people and we mimic. You know, the whole fake it till you make it thing we giggle about. <laughs> it's a very big chunk of human development. Mm. We fake it till we make it. And if we don't make it, we fake something else until that we make something else. Hell, we didn't know... Well, you had a better idea about podcasting when we started than I did. <laughs> I've been faking it till I make it with this podcast thing. Hey, it's we're making it. Yeah, <laughs> it started work all right. Yeah. yeah. We got a kind of habit that works. Well, it, this we've been broadly skimming around a, a concept which fueled or well, inspired this episode, which is... Um, uh, I can't remember his first name. Winnicott's idea of good enough parenting. And this is a psychologist that wrote uh, a lot of work in the early 20th century but I would actually really like to bring on even modern kind of psychologist or child psychologist or um, uh, what are they called paediatricians and, mm. uh, yeah paediatrician that's the medical side isn't it yeah the pe- pe- Podiatry, podiatry psychologist I don't know whatever well it's probably just child psychologist yeah. so listeners if you are a person who's an expert in any of this stuff and want to come on mm. or you know someone who is you know, let us know because, yeah, like, you know, we, we talk about education so much and how people grow and shape themselves. And, it, you know, it's so important to have a deeper understanding of, at the very least, you're going to be mirrored whether you know it or not. Mm. So you better put something out there that, you know, you wouldn't be upset if it got mirrored. Yeah, that's right. Right, well, uh, David, thank you for putting something out there that I'm sure you're not going to be upset with. Uh, <laughs> and being a good role model is basically what I'm trying to say. Um, and, and thank you very much for joining me today. Hey, it turned out okay and I didn't walk into a wall, so the mirroring's <laughs> all right. That's it. Uh, thank you, audience. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out.